You're listening to The S-Rank on the Triple S Studios Podcast Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The S-Rank. I'm your host, Aaron. And I'm your host, William. And today we've got another very special guest, as usual. We've got Daryl Baxter. He's the author of The Making of Tomb Raider Unofficial Book. Um, and he's also a writer at uh, Tech Radar and has been a freelance writer for several years before that. And we're super excited to talk with him today about his uh, career with Tomb Raider. Um, Daryl, how are you doing today? I'm really good, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. I know the the time zones are quite a bit different. It is uh, nighttime for you and it is uh, just after noon for us. So um, thank you for uh, even joining us uh, at at night. We really appreciate it. No problem. (laughs) Um, So I guess we'll start off with uh, just like very basic stuff. Like what, what, when did you realize that you were passionate about writing for games? Oh, so when I was at university back in 2012, so almost nine years ago now, 10 years ago, uh, I was, I saw this like student magazine at uni and they sent an email like just campus wide going, oh, we're looking for contributions. Would you like to, you know, have some ideas? And I've never really written anything before. And I was like, yeah, I could do that. And I just thought I'd send across an email about Tomb Raider out of anything. And after like a little bit of a pitch, they accepted it and it was about a little retrospective about Tomb Raider 2. And because they had some budgets, they were able to print the actual magazine and put it around the campus. And when everything was done, <coughs> one day I just came across the magazine, saw my article and I thought, well, okay, the article is actually there in a page in a printed magazine that I've opened like a book. And it's amazing. And ever since then, I just kind of, and it sounds cheesy, but I just got the book for it. And ever since then, I've just been going, yeah, just everywhere, really. So, yeah, it led to the interview with composer Nathan McCree in the magazine. And uh, ever since then, it's just been freelancing up to where I am now. Wow, that's awesome. So, so like, even before that, it's it's great hearing that people start writing even in their post-secondary, which is fantastic. So did you just not write anything, like, games-related before then? No. No, I really didn't. It was just a strange, yeah, it was a weird thing because I just thought I'll just try anything once. I'm that kind of person. I'll just, if it doesn't work for me, then I know about I've tried it. That's the really the main thing I live by. But yeah, when that came out, it just something happened where it's like, I want to pursue this and just see where it leads. And yeah, I just kept going really ever since for nine years. That, that, that's awesome. Uh, most of the guests, you could see why I'm surprised. And most of the guests that when I asked them, when did you start doing your thing? It was very like, oh, well, I've known since I was a, I was a little child. But um, it's, yeah, it's very refreshing to hear a different answer on our yeah, show for yeah, once. That's good. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So a good start. I love, you, you get a lot of different angles talking to the people we've had on because we've had a, we've had Paul Lombardo on as well. And yeah. he is so passionate about all of his writing and he I really love watching uh, or like reading some of his articles you can really tell he's just been he's been sitting there looking at his stuff doing his thing for a while um it's it's a professionally written article that feels like a talk with a friend mm. absolutely right and yeah I I think it's really neat to see different people get to different spots in their writing different points in their life well they, they've each got their own styles that really come out just from the journey alone it really does and i just want to say that after reading your book i you know i thought i was going to read it over the course of two days i was going to be like okay uh saturday i'll read half of it sunday i'll read the other half and then i'll also type the questions for him but i was just so engaged <laughs> by the book and it just felt it literally felt to me like i was watching a documentary with just the way that it was uh structured and everything is super Thank you. Yeah, it was super um, clear to follow just for anyone, even if they haven't really had that much experience with Tomb Raider, you can really just follow along and see, ga- gather that sort of behind the scenes uh, experience that you really mm. translate through the book. But we'll get into that later. <laughs> we'll get in more <laughs> into the book later. Um, I want to ask you about Super Jump, which is our connection, yeah. where I know you from, where I know Paul mm. Lombardo from. How did you happen upon it and um, where where has it taken you? <laughs> sure. So around that time, I started just freelancing because I was in an IT job and I just wasn't really happy, to be honest. So I was freelancing on the side, pitching everywhere. And I think I saw a tweet from, 
it must have been from James um, asking for pictures. And it was about, I'm sure it was early 2018. And I thought I'd just pitch something about the launch of the PlayStation 2. Back when they announced it in August of 2000, um, demoing Crash Bandicoot and Ridge Racer and everything there. And <coughs> I wanted to speak about really like the, just how it all came to be. And since then, it just kind of like went from there. And uh, me and James just got really got, like, got on well. And like since then, it led to, I think, I haven't checked actually for my profile. Um, but I think there was four more that got published on Super Jump. And ever since then, we've just been in search. And it's been great even guessing on their podcast that was there at the time with him and Mitchell. So yeah, really good place. Absolutely. And then so from Super Jump, did that lead you into opportunities with Tech Radar? Or was that through some some other connection? It was, no, not as yet, no. So around that time, I decided to go full-time freelancing, about 2018, in, in late 2018. And I was just pitching like a madman. It was just everywhere with every outlet. I mean, Twitter was at the time, really, um, just a place just for pitches and DMing and emailing, going, you know, I've got this idea, how about this? And honestly, I was relentless. I didn't stop for full-time because, you, you know, at the end of the day, I, I need to eat, you know, so it was, I needed the money. So I just kept going, I kept writing. And eventually, it led to the point where a guy from uh, what's called Gfinity, an esports site, they were setting up a tech website called Stealth Optional. And they said, we've seen your writing. And they actually said, Super Jump as an example. And they said, you know, do you fancy going and, you know, helping us set this site up? And that was Stealth Optional. And from that, it was a great I think it was 14 months and then after that that's when tech radar kind of got in touch and after a few interviews i was there and i still am and it's great i, I love it it's such a great job oh I'm, I'm so glad that you enjoy it you know we hear these days all too often where it's just like oh i'm i'm at another publication they're not treating me well it's it's they're yeah. not they're not paying me enough um but uh, it, I'm glad to hear that you are having a good time over at Tech Radar, and I I know that for sure James and everyone else I think at the Super Jump team appreciates your uh, contributions there. But um, you also have some other projects going on. You had uh, or you have on hiatus a podcast called uh, Pal Keys. What do you talk about on that show? So that's a podcast that's is about to turn three years old, which just makes me feel old. It's a pretty much a show where I bring any guest on. It doesn't matter if you've got a slight interest in games or a big interest. And I just have to ask the guest two questions, a memorable game, a memorable boss stage. And we talk about their career and their thoughts on like the game industry or tech industry, how it is at the moment. And I try and aim for an hour, but there are times when it goes to two and a half hours anyway. But yeah, really fun time. But yeah, like you say, it's on hiatus because life stuff is getting in the way. I mean, in the best possible way, if my fiance is listening, because it's a wedding next year, so I don't have time. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's that's awesome. Um, and on your show, um, do you have some a particular favorite episodes that you've recorded up to this point? Oh, Everyone's a favourite. Everyone. But that's how we feel. You know, <laughs> that's how we but, feel about our show. Honestly, if, if there's one to highlight, I mean it would it would have to be David Hater who came on and you know, when he guested and he did the voice of Snake and he said pal keys, I mean, I don't find boy often, but when he said <laughs> that, I was like, Oh, oh god, <laughs> let's carry on with the show. I would be right there if we got David Hayter. Oh my <laughs> I'd be right there. That, yeah. That is I mean <laughs> Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't expecting that. Um, I just want to compare our processes on getting our favorite voices. here. <laughs> <laughs> How did that come about? <laughs> did you just email oh, them? It, it was it was yeah, it was an email that began in yeah, November 2019. And it, I just reached out and just said, look, I mean, I've got this podcast. Here's the name of it. Here's what happened. I just love to have a chat about, you know, just what you're in, what's going on in your career so far and everything there. And this was before the pandemic. So I was like, well, this is just a moonshot. And then when it actually became uh, like the pandemic was a thing and lockdown was all across the world, I thought I'd reach out again. And I said, look, I know we're all stuck inside, but would you fancy maybe just having a chat for an hour or so? And he replied and said, yes. And I spoke to his agents and yeah, I was so nervous. <laughs> because it was oh my just, goodness. Talking to, you know, David Hayter from a game that has meant a lot to me as much yeah. as Tomb Raider for over 20 years. So, yeah, chatting to him on over Skype was um, was a moment. 
<laughs> yeah, that's amazing. I mean, yeah, I mean, anything that... <laughs> I think between the two of us, we're going to have the, the entire Smash Bros. voice roster on our podcast. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, yeah, um, I definitely just, whenever someone else has a, uh, a voice actor on their podcast, I always am curious to hear about those experiences. <laughs> um, but let's move on to uh, your experiences with the elephant in the room, Tomb Raider, of course. Yes, um, yes. Uh, I just want to know about the first time you ever played. Do you recall anything from that single experience? Yeah, yeah. So I first got a PlayStation back in July of 97. And in the UK, they also come with this demo disc called Demo 1. And you'd have like a tech demo where it had the flying manta ray in the in the water and the T-Rex. And you have this collection of little demos, so Crash Bandicoot. Um, others that have been lost to time, like Roscoe McQueen and Life Force Tinker, I think I remember it's called, and Tomb Raider. Uh, and it was the second level where you would run about and you'd come across a barn, and for some reason, a barn that had a bear for some reason, and you'd just have to run away. And for my, you know, eight-year-old self, it was weird because the year before that, I was playing Sonic 3 and Knuckles, like, relentlessly. So the jump from 2D of that to 3D, being able to swim, roll, dive, you know, pull levers randomly you know, in water, it blew my mind with Tomb Raider. It really did. And it was a good timing, actually, because I was then bought a magazine that had just covered E3 that year, and they were covering Tomb Raider 2, where they were saying how she could climb, drive vehicles, you know, it was set in China. And then I asked for it for Christmas, I got it, and that was... Tomb Raider 2 was the first game of Tomb Raider that I owned. And it just kind of left from there, really. It was a strange year of 97. <laughs> so with that transition then between Tomb Raider 1 and Tomb Raider 2, did you have, was there any sort of eye-opening moment for you that you experienced in the sequel that was different from the original? Yeah, the vehicle. The, the, the moment of driving that boat in Venice on the second level. You know, you get into that boat the first time, and the music plays, and it just, even, you know, I mean, essentially, you know, you're just down like a corridor, essentially, from a level editor, but it felt like a my eight-year-old self that you were driving through Venice and causing a scene, and it was just something else. It was a real, real highlight. You know, that, I always, I always think about that level, and I'm always thinking it's just so similar to that scene in the third Indiana Jones movie where they're in Venice and driving on yeah. the speedboats. It's just, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk more about the uh, relationship between Mr. Jones and Miss Croft <laughs> later on. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I just want to know what you think about the Lara Croft character. I mean, obviously she's played a big role in your life, I'm assuming. Um, mm. what, is she, what does she mean to you and what kind of a person do you think she is? I mean, you know, a big part of her is like, you know, she's, you know, in some part giving me a career that I do now. I mean, there's no bones about it. You know, her, um, Snake, Sonic, you know, it's just ridiculous how these characters who I used to talk about in a playground at school has now kind of like helped that foundation for a career that I do now that's helped paying my rent, helping goes towards the wedding. So that will always be something to me. It will always mean so much to me. But even like as a character, I mean, I kind of feel like it's weird with Lara because the thing is, if you go through her games throughout the years from Tomb Raider 1 to Shadow, there's different personalities because it's it's dependent on what team is creating her or the writing team, like Rihanna Cratchit, for example. But my idea of Lara always goes from the first three games. So she's independent. She's curious but doesn't take herself too seriously. It's got James Bondian comedy as well, which I think is missing in the modern games. And it's like she wants to get the job done, but <coughs> make sure like the good guys who are, she comes across in her travels are safe as well. And any bad guys in her path gets annihilated, whether that's a tiger or a guy. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, You did mention uh, Rihanna Pratchett, and I just thought I'd, I'd uh, just ask briefly, do you prefer the incarnation of the original Lara over Pratchett's interpretation or is there any sort of comparison there or do you just love it all all the same? I kind of like see these interpretations of Lara like similar to James Bond, Doctor Who, uh, Superman even. 
you know, everyone's got their own interpretation of what they think their hero is or certain character. I mean, like, take the upcoming Spider-Man film, for instance. I mean, there's a crazy rumour that we're going to see three Spider-Men, but they're all interpreted differently. So I think that's the same that applies to Lara. And to me, I relate mostly to the first incarnation, you know, not because I've written a book, it's because, like, I've, yeah, you know, it's what I grew up with and it's what I... I feel familiar most with really. So Rihanna Pratchett did an amazing job, don't get me wrong, but it's just not something that kind of, you know, I can relate to in some way, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned in the foreword of your book that you started interviews around May 2020. Mm. Uh, You first had the idea in 2012. What made you realize that you had uh, the capacity to make that a reality? A pandemic. Is a short answer. <laughs> we feel um, very similarly there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like, you know, I knew that it was going to involve so many people involved, but I always knew that trying to get those people, like, from their jobs or their career, it was going to be a headache in trying to get that secured. So, honestly, once the pandemic hit, I thought, let's just go for this. I didn't know how long the lockdown was going to last, especially in the UK. And a lot of people involved in Zoom Radio in the beginning are still based in the UK. So I thought, let's just go for it. And yeah, Pandemic uh, pitched it to a publisher, Pen and Sword, who um, were really favourable for it because I noticed that a certain journalist, Chris Scullion, had also, you know, been doing their encyclopedias. And yeah, it, it, the contract was signed in March. Two months were spent really kind of planning and crystallising the ideas that I've had since 2012. And then, yeah, May onwards was just relentless interviews and more interviews and transcribing interviews and going back to interviews. It was, yeah, it took a while. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Um, did you find that because of the pandemic, you were able to interview like a lot more people? It was easier to reach out to more people or kind of just the same emailing sort of situation? It was a mix. I mean, it was definitely easier for some people. Like Some people I just have to email because like someone was, um, he's like a music director so we just didn't have time to do a Skype call. Whereas someone like, say, Heather, who designed like the first two games, I was going on Skype with her, you know, every few weeks just in case. And it, <coughs> it was great. But yeah, it was just trying to make sure that I had the, you know, the, the time available for them. And I was also treating it like a Palkeys podcast, but unofficially, you know, because I was conscious that we are in a lot, we were in a lot of lockdown. Um, well, we might be still, um, we were in a lockdown, <laughs> but it was a fact that I wanted it to flow as well the questions that I had, because it could maybe go into something else. And it did, because it went into Angel of Darkness, for instance, and went into uh, canned ideas that are in the book now. And it just really worked out well, to be honest. But yeah, it just took, you know, a while, but I think it was worth it in the end. Oh, Absolutely. Uh, what do you think the most challenging part of writing the book, in particular a nonfiction book, uh, what do you think the most challenging part of that is? I mean, the thing is, it's like, I mean, so I mean, it's a story of the development of the first two games. So the big challenge is making sure that every interview I had and every interview that I transcribed made sense and it fit the narrative from the beginnings of core design to when the team left after Tomb Raider 2. It had to make sense. And that was, yeah, last November to January of a deadline. It was. I didn't have Christmas off. It was pretty much me making sure every transcribed interview was in the right section of the chapter with my input as well and making sure that it all made sense. And I had countless post-it notes on my office wall making sure that everything made sense. Because if, say, like something missed out, like, say, Winston the Butler, you know, if I missed that out, I mean, that'd be an outcry. So I had to start <laughs> that in, you know? So, I mean, that was the challenge. But, yeah, I think... Um, Hopefully, anyway, it's turned out well for the story. Oh, absolutely. I, I very much feel for you when uh, when you mentioned the post-it note wall. Yeah, I I, I have been right there. My I, I recently moved, so I had to take it down. But I still got the notes. There's a yeah, lot yeah. of them. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Hey, everyone. It's William, the guy who's been isolated in his room the last 10 days because I got that funny little mischief-making microbe mixed into my breathing organs. I hope you've been enjoying today's episode. Spice Girls, am I right? Never mind, you'll get that one later. If you haven't already, you should go and follow us on Twitter at the S-Rank Podcast so we can keep you up to date with our latest episodes and anything else that we're up to. 
You should also go check out our YouTube channel, Triple S Studios, where Aaron posts sneak peeks of our episodes bi-weekly on Thursdays. That's the day before our episode airs. And before I let you get back to the rest of our episode, I just wanted to let you know that I tried really hard not to make an April Fool's joke here, and I hope you appreciate that. That's all. Enjoy the rest. So there was one key figure missing from your book, and that was Vicky Arnold, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. If you were able to get in contact with her, what would you have asked? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I had these questions ready, like, for her anyway, if I, if I ever found her. But, I mean, like, the main ones would be, like, you know, because she was a big part in creating Laura Croft in the beginning. You know, her and Susie Hamilton, who was in the book... Yeah, they created that personality that I spoke about, you know, playful, but charming, but serious. But it was all Vicky and Susie. And just to ask her about, you know, like what are the inspirations behind it? You know, what made her like think about those stories for the first three games? Because even though the book is about the first two, she also wrote the story for the third game as well before leaving. So I really wanted to know, like, you know, what were inspirations for, for those stories? And what would she have done if she had stayed on for the fourth game, perhaps, because it went back to Egypt? So I would have thought, like, you know, just what if, really? So, yeah, um, it's a shame that she wasn't in, but I kind of get a feeling like she doesn't want to be found. So I'm respectfully just leaving it be. Totally fair. We've we've seen we've, a couple of guests. We've seen a couple, a couple of people, people that we've for. wanted to have on the show that have made their internet presence so scarce that it's like yeah. they don't want to be found. Like, it's, it's very, like, <laughs> I'm a pretty good, like... Finder. I'm a good You're finder crazy, yeah. at like finding people. <laughs> yeah. But even at that level, there's just some that uh, you know, they, they don't want to be found. And I guess whether or not Vicky wants to be associated with the Tomb Raiders projects is up for mm. interpretation. I I don't re- quite recall, but did Susie mention, I think, in your book that at the time she didn't want to associate herself with Tomb Raider? Is that is that yeah yeah you're right yeah i mean i think it was the same feeling as that um i say in the book about toby and paul because the plan was only for one game that's all it was mm-hmm. and i think once say like the the advertising team at idos got wind of how sexualized they can make lara to sell more games essentially and you know when it's the mid 90s i mean sex sold like a lot you know you had loaded magazines the you know the the Ladette magazines as well, and British culture as well, that kind of really hyped this up. And they were not comfortable with it, and understandably so, really. Um, it wouldn't fly in this modern age, and rightfully so. And I think Vicky had an issue with it, um, because I think it took away like what the character stood for, really, like personality-wise. So, yeah, I think that's pretty much why she wants to just leave it be now, like Toby. Yeah, and that perfectly segues into uh, what I was going to ask you about Toby and Paul. Um, so that was pretty much, that was like the all is lost moment of the story of the making of Tomb Raider, essentially. At least the, mm-hmm. when I read your book, that's what I thought. It's it's all it's crumbling down. But they, they managed to make the second game uh, without them. Do you think, um, what is your personal take on their departure, Toby and Paul, um, should they have left when they did? I think mental health wise, yes, definitely. Because they were just, you know, it's the equivalent of the crunch culture today that we hear about, you know, whether it's cyberpunk or, or Activision or something else. There was an equivalent back then, because even though they pitched it in 94, I mean, they had to get, release the game at the end of 96, like regardless of what happened. Now, who knows what would have happened if it was released in the finished state? Um, then again, we know what happened with Angel Darkness. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it was just the right thing mental health-wise for them to go. And I think they valued that above the money that had been made, really, from the first game and the subsequent games as well. Yeah, I, I would have to definitely agree with that. I mean, we talked about uh, sort of the crunch culture with uh, Paul Lombardo on his episode a while mm-hmm. back. So so you said that, you know, the over-sexualization of Lara, it would, that stuff wouldn't fly today. But with the crunch culture part of it, do you think crunch is any, do you think it's different than it was back then? Do you think we have improved as an industry and, and where do, where do we go with that? I don't think there's like a clear answer for this because the thing is, I think it depends on the certain companies really. Um, because it really, really is that one size fits all because, you know, we are seeing like what's happened with, you know, electronic arts, you know, a few years ago, Activision in some cases as well. 
I kind of feel like in some ways it's the same because 25 years ago, we didn't have social media, you know, documenting this. We didn't have, you know, the journalism that we have now, like really going into the weeds of this. You know, we had a magazine, we had maybe a couple of online sites, but that was it. There were no podcasts, no streams, no Let's Plays, no comments, no commentary. So I kind of feel like it's the same, but also different in some ways as well. If that makes sense, you have my respects, both of you. But yeah, <laughs> it just, it's, it's, yeah, it's just a difficult answer, really. Um, I think yes and no, but I think with the rise of social media and the internet, it's, it's different for the better. Well, yeah, I mean, it was, it was very curious to me, very uh, eye-opening to me for sure when, uh, you know, in your book, you describe all these phone calls and faxes going back and forth because there was no emails on yeah. the production of Tomb Raider. It just seems so <laughs> crazy to me, like how much work was going on across the entire uh, company and they, they weren't able to. Anyways, I, that's just that's just my <laughs> that's just my <laughs> mind blown uh, moment. But let's talk about I, I wanted to talk about your interviews with your guests. So. When you weren't able to get a hold of Vicky Arnold, but you were able to get a hold of lots of members of the team, um, was there yeah. anyone that you think that you needed your their blessing from in order to publish the book or anything like that? Um, not really, no. Um, because the thing is, like, it's like I said, I mean, it's a story. And they were happy to have it told because, you know, a couple of people had told me um, off of record that they felt as though that their efforts weren't really being credited um like in the past really and one of the aims for me with the book was to say exactly who was responsible for what because in the book you find out who was responsible for winston and some of the discarded ideas as well for winston um in the second game so there were like obviously some topics which you know had to be talked about in order to raise topics that are in the book if that makes sense but obviously, you know, respectfully, I'll never say what they are because we could face legalities or something like that. But essentially, you know, I, I, I held back. <laughs> yeah. Um, so with those interviews then and your relationship with the team now obviously has grown since you started. Uh, what has it been like uh, since you released the book? Have you kept in touch with them? Have they reached out to you? Yeah. I mean, to be honest, ever since I did an interview with Nathan, like, 10 years ago, almost 10 years ago. I mean, we've kept in touch. We, you know, we've uh, grown to be friends. Uh, you know, went to his, um, Tomb Raider suite in London, um, in 2016 and just incredible hearing that music live with an orchestra, just incredible. And ever since then, you know, I'd meet the team, Heather, Pete, Gav. And yeah, like you say, like from the book launch and I've, especially the book launch in Derby, which still doesn't feel real to me being on the stage with them all. Um, we all get on really well and just having a laugh because the thing is, you know, it's down to earth, you know, they're just regular people and it's just nice, you know, the fact that you can just have a chat with them about anything and yeah, it's really nice, but yeah, we still keep in touch and, uh, they asked me like how the book is as well. So yeah, it's really nice. Wonderful to hear. You know, I feel like the reason I think it was so important for me to ask that question is because when the, our very first guest for the podcast was Steve Golson. And he was the hardware engineer behind the original uh, Miss Pac-Man. And at that time, nice. we really wanted to be careful about documenting his story on there. So we were back and forth with him all the time. And really, he he uh, looking back, you know, I don't think I had to be so nervous about it in general. But, you know, it's just these people have such an effect, even even though they think yeah. that they're just like, you know, normal working people, they have such an effect on people's lives in so many different degrees of separation. It's just you want to as as a person who's doing this as a as a labor of love, you always want to um, make sure that you're doing them justice. And I think, you, yeah, I think you did that with your book. It's it's really uh it's 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 such a journey. It's such a story, and I really enjoyed it. Okay. I think you, you perfectly encapsulated why we even do this podcast too. And yeah, like the whole the whole point of this podcast for me is to get people to tell stories that they want to tell that haven't been told. Yeah, they need to be told. So yeah, that's that's why I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. In your personal uh, opinion, what do you think is the most important thing that you want readers to take away from your book? Oh, I mean, like you've sent me this question and I've like been thinking about, this is like the one question that I've been thinking about like the most, 
because it really is an important one as far as I'm concerned. I mean, let's see. Uh, I think it's like really the fact that it, this is a story about a team that came really close, who really wanted to kind of prove like how the 3D world of games could really be, how it could be defined, but also led by a female heroine as well. Because before we had so many like male heroes and everything there. And I think the fact that it had that charm of a, of a UK British company who really kind of like got the humor of a Bond or even like parts of Indiana Jones, because, you know, part of Indiana Jones was inspired by Bond, as Steven Spielberg said in the past. And I think the main takeaway is this is a story of people who really were close together, who became firm friends. The second family almost. And I think it's some jobs that we get that, that second family. And a story just how Lara came to be and how it's still defining games 25 years on. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to, um, without giving away t- uh, too much from your book, uh, what, what do you think is one thing that you learned about the Tomb Raider story that you didn't exactly know before you started interviewing all of your guests? I think it was just how much of a rush it was to make sure that everything fell into place. Because, you know, in like the early chapters of the book, I mean, they talk about how they were like animating Lara and everything was lovely and it animated really well. But they didn't have a game. They didn't have a level, you know? They had a maybe a pyramid or, you know, a little valley. Um, but to me, it was a fact <coughs> just how the team came together and knew exactly in the last 18 months of how they were going to go about it, what the levels were going to be and how everyone just kind of like, got it as well, how they got the theme of Lara, how they got the the movie-fied Bondian version of, of Tomb Raider 1 and eventually Tomb Raider 2 as well. And that's kind of the main thing I take away, just how close the team were, but also how much they all kind of understood one another's strengths as well, as well as weaknesses, which resulted in the, the two games. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned uh, the levels, which are like they're, each one is a very um, unique environment and it basically comprises the entire game um from my personal experience playing the game i've always felt that the levels that lara goes through they really encapsulate the feeling of being uh alone and i think part of that is uh brought on by the fact of uh the skybox being uh (laughs) completely uh black for the entire first game but i want your opinion because the the um, the term liminal spaces has been, it's been repopularized uh, lately just across social media in general. Would you mm. describe Lara's worlds that she goes through in the original Tomb Raider? Would you describe them as liminal spaces? So do you mean just like just set at nights or not really some I've heard? I looked up the definition and apparently a liminal space is not really necessarily a space that should be existed in, but rather just passed through sort of like sort of like a hallway, because the entire Tomb Raider game, I noticed it was, um, I think there was one part where someone mentioned that the entire game was Lara in different rooms, Mm. essentially. Yeah, I think that's a good point, really. Um, But then again, I mean, they were just kind of like aiming to get the game finished (laughs) on on the other hand as well. You know, they wanted to make sure, like, because they were guiding the player. The music was guiding the player, especially. You know, you go to like a certain point of a level, a music track would play, or in the first game, especially, you'd have someone, you know, chasing you like Pierre or Larson, you know, pointing a gun at you. So I kind of feel like, yeah, it is without even knowing it, to be honest. Maybe create the term, who knows? But I feel like it's a really good example of, um, of that luminal of, of Tomb Raider. I think especially the first one as well, because when you get to say the second game, you know, everything is, you know, more so set outside, you know, rather than inside. And it makes you kind of have that illusion of freedom especially in 97 as well, because you've got other games around the era where maybe have got, uh, you know, you've got Goldeneye. But, I mean, to me anyway, and you can say I'm wrong, but with Goldeneye, for instance, it doesn't feel like you've got that freedom. You've got the linearity, but I think with Tomb Raider 1 and 2, you've got that almost illusion that you can go anywhere if you really wanted to. Yeah, definitely. And I definitely feel that sort of way when, you know, you even compare it to games like Mario 64, mm. you know, it you know, you still have... You have technically, a, you know, a whole world to explore, but 
you know, at the end of that, you're coming back to, you're looping around, coming back to the castle, essentially, and then going into the next level. So mm. it does feel uh, linear in that way. But yeah, I would have to agree with you just on the freedom that was given uh, in the original Tomb Raider game. Now, the, the game was described as a 3D version of The Prince of Persia, and she was described, Lara Croft was a female Indiana Jones. Do you think that these comparisons take away from her originality? No, I think it enhances it because I kind of feel like the best kind of like, you know, best kind of media or the best kind of whatever it could be, film, album, uh, game, they're all inspired by what came before. I mean, you've got like Star Wars that are inspired by the Japanese films of the 1940s. And to be honest, you know, Lara Croft was inspired by Indiana Jones and Prince of Persia, you know, because in the book it says about how those certain steps of Lara to make sure that jump was correct was based off Prince of Persia anyway, before Prince of Persia even went to 3D. You know, ironically, you know, there was a 3D game that came out after Tomb Raider that was inspired by Tomb Raider. You know, it's just a weird paradox. So, yeah, I think absolutely it enhanced it um, because I think originality could become, like, comes from inspiration from other mediums. And I think that's what Tomb Raider is a big part of. Yeah, I would I, I would have to agree with that too. I... I... I really, I really like the comparison, especially with uh, Indiana Jones. You know, big part of my, uh, big part of my childhood, mm. and um, you know, it's it's not something that you know when I played Tomb Raider for the first time, it wasn't even something that I was just like, oh yeah, this is this is female Indiana Jones. But later, you know, when I, I'm hearing those comparisons, I'm like, oh yeah, she kind, you know, they kind of are, they kind of are counterparts. They kind of. Yeah. <laughs> have similar things going for them. And I, I do, uh, I really appreciate that. And I also appreciate uh, Lara's influences on later characters. I had a stream the other day. I'm doing Twitch streams now yeah. these days. Okay. <laughs> um, and I had someone come on to my playthrough of Bayonetta 2 and they were a huge classic Tomb Raider fan. And they said essentially that there was lots of overlap uh, between uh, uh, Lara and Bayonetta. And then, you know, they uh, filled my chat with all these different comparisons. And I was just like, yeah, I mean, I, I never thought about it that way. I guess it's really <laughs> cool. What are some of the games that you think Tomb Raider has influenced or some of the characters that you think Lara has influenced? Oh, there's, there's so many. I mean, even just from the late 90s, I mean, you've got Meryl from Metal Gear Solid, for instance. That's a big one. Um, the... Uh, Forgive me, I forget the name, but she's from Siphon Filter. Um, those first few games, you know, it, if no one's known, known about what Siphon Filter is, it's pretty much the game where you use a taser to light people on fire. Uh, I mean, the third oh, person okay. game. There we are. <laughs> yeah. So there's like a lady in that, which is a big in, like influence. Um, you know, a 2.5D game, Pandemonium, um, Nikki. But there's there's one in there, um, but even like just like further on, I mean like a uh, the main character in Heavenly Sword, a launch title for the PS3, um, you know, or even like uh, the women from like Uncharted. I mean that's a big inspiration from Tomb Raider anyway. But playing like Lost Legacy or even Last of Us Two, you just know that they're inspired by Tomb Raider. That's what began it, really. So honestly, there's there's countless stuff that you can really do from Tomb Raider. All the way. Yeah, the, the Last of Us comparison in particular, I always thought I saw a lot of Lara's like characteristics kind of almost spread evenly yeah. across a couple of the yeah. main characters. It's <laughs> almost like she's like there. <laughs> but like as an over as like an overarching presence over yeah. by the watcher. I, I love The Last of Us, so I, I can I can definitely see that. Um on on the topic before Prince of Persia, have you played Prince of Persia? Yeah, yeah. I've I played first um, two games I remember I think it was on the Amiga I first played and I'm sure there was I could be wrong on this I'm sure there was a demo on one demo disc of the actual Prince of Persia 3D that was the actual title in 98 and it was awful it was such a it was an <laughs> awful game it didn't work out at all <laughs> but um, I remember playing Sands of Time in 2003 and just that time mechanic just blew my mind it's crazy yeah Oh, that that <laughs> game is very close to my heart too. I remember uh, initially watching my dad play that game because he's like, "Oh, this looks cool. I'm gonna pick it up." And he picked it up and was playing it on my console. I I really fondly remember just watching all the neat time mechanics, all yeah. the jumping and everything. And yeah, oh, very interesting games. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, the control was great. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Very ahead of its time, even still. Lots of climbing that you see in stuff like uh, Dying Light now. It was a lot more mm. open than it should have been back then, really. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so we've talked a bit about, you know, Lara's character. And obviously, she's a, she's a huge part of the game. She's the, she's the main character. Um, but we also have uh, the foil, uh, which is uh, Natla. Now, um, you know, when people think about Tomb Raider, uh, you know, they first they first think of Lara and they first think of the worlds that she visits. But Natla was actually like she was one of the OG like video game villainesses. I would go as far mm. as, as saying that. What do you think about her as an antagonist and what do you think about her legacy in, in video games in general? Oh, I think on Natla it's a great um, like other side of the coin with Lara. You know, I mean, apart from the fact of her being like an Atlantean god, I think it's the fact that she takes up that mantle of being like a, a mid-90s businesswoman, you know, like trying to get the, the artifact for money, whereas Laura does it for for the game, really, for the challenge. Um, and, you know, Natla has her own you know, group of henchmen, uh, which, you know, there was a name for them as well that's in the book. And it's a really good, like, kind of like, mirror image of like what Laura could have been as well if she like followed that career or like what Natla is. But again, Atlantean God. Um <laughs> you know, Laura's like <coughs> taking down like something which is one of the most mythical stories ever, you know, At- Atlantis. And you know, the game follows that. And I think especially when it comes to like say the first 3D games of of like say Natla, it's a great example of like just how you not only got like the great female heroine but you've got a great villainess as well in natla something which again wasn't really done before because i can't really name a mega drive game that really had a a boss that was 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 female essentially so i think it's a really good example of like what could have been done back then but i think in the modern age i think again last of us 2 has a villain villainess which is really good. Yeah, and you got to think that, you know, as much as Lara and Tomb Raider have inspired other games and other protagonists, you know, Natla is probably like the base of many, uh, you know, female antagonists that have followed uh, in video games. You know, obviously you, you talk about Natla in your book, but uh, I've always been interested in the character because in, uh, I think it's in Tomb Raider Underworld, she's voiced by Grey Delisle, mm-hmm. um, who also voices John in the Bayonetta series, and you know I'm obsessed with voice actors, so <laughs> I, I had to I had to ask I had to ask. Um, in your book, uh, you keep track of the Tomb Raider fr- uh, timeline with the development timeline with the releases of uh, Spice Girls songs, which I found very uh, very fun because um, I was just like, oh, I, <laughs> I love you picked that up. <laughs> I guess that did come out around that time. <laughs> How much overlap do you think there is between Tomb Raider and Spice Girls fans? <laughs> so I think at the beginning, I mean, it was a it was a matter of timing, really. Um, but the thing is, like, I always like kind of like put the two together because when I had Tomb Raider two at Christmas, then three, then four, I'd always remember there'd be a Spice Girls song that would come out around Christmas as a Christmas number one when I get a new Tomb Raider game. So I've always put the two together. So whenever I see the Spice Girls or I, I hear it play as like one of the Christmas songs like To Become One or, or Goodbye or something, I always think about Tomb Raider as well. It sounds mad, but that's just <laughs> where my mind goes because that's where my childhood is. It's just bizarre. But I just thought, you know, let's just go the whole hog. Let's just kind of like reference it in the book, but let's also name it after a chapter <laughs> as well. And I think it works out well one of the chapters after a Spice Girls song. So yeah, yeah, it you know what it's it's endearing and it gives like a, a very genuine uh, experience with with the timeline. And it's <laughs> it's you know I when I saw it in the book I was just like that this is so cool. Like I did not expect to be reading a book about Tomb Raider and then hearing about the Spice Girls at the same time. I was just like wow, I I I really enjoy that. This is this feels very catered to me. <laughs> So much nuance. So much nuance. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So before we wrap up here, we're very, uh, very, very grateful to have had you on the show. This has been, uh, honestly, one of my favorite episodes that we've recorded so far. I say that (laughs) every episode, but um, really after... Because people keep impressing us and just surprising. It it really does. Every time we come into these interviews, we're thinking, oh, this is going to be awesome. Like, what what a cool guest. And every time we leave, that was even cooler than I thought it was going to be. Exactly. Oh, my God. Exactly. 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 Um, 
So, yeah, before we wrap up here, I just want to ask you about the future of the Tomb Raider franchise. Um, so you wrote this article on Super Jump called Finding Lara Croft. Um, it's a really good read. You have several uh, interviews on there. And towards the end, uh, you say about the future of Tomb Raider that continual rebooting would be a waste of time. So mm-hmm. um, if that's the case, where do you think the franchise should go from here? So they've already talked about this unification of timelines, like in the beginning of this anniversary campaign, which in my opinion, they really should have said it now instead of the beginning, because I think now the fans are festering as to what they're actually doing. Um, So the thing is, I've always had this idea of like an older Lara Croft. Um, So there's like a Batman story called The Dark Knight Returns, where Batman is like 60 odd years old, like an old Batman, like coming back from retirement. And I feel like Lara Croft would be great in that kind of setting, like played by Helen Mirren, for instance, or someone else in that age range. And she's come back for like for one last, you know, artifact, where it could be Natla. And I think that could work as well because, you know, it would be an ageless Natla. So I think just having to have that rivalry and just, yeah, just have that back, you know, I think it'd be great. Um, but then again, obviously, it's a series, need to make money, so... I'd just say, like, bring back Shelly Blonde and just have a voice uh, from Tomb Raider 1 again. <laughs> oh, that would be so cool. That would be so cool. I think the old Lara angle might be one of the coolest ideas I've ever heard. Yeah. <laughs> now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah. That, okay, first of all, it sounds like that would be one of your favorite games because you've got a writing quirk. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you've got My, a little quirk. Okay, every, every piece of fiction I've ever written, I'm not joking you, has involved an old woman protagonist like i all I, right yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah um tomb raider dev team if you're hiring i'm your, I'm your person yeah i just want to play it that sounds good <laughs> um so uh shelly blonde uh possibly helen mirren um dare i ask you your thoughts on the tomb raider movie starring miss jolie <laughs> <laughs> they are totally fine action movies <laughs> <laughs> we'll take yeah. that we'll, we'll take that good yeah um uh, do you think that uh laura croft should have been included in smash bros 100 percent. a hundred percent it was it would be such a perfect perfect inclusion because when they were hinting it i was thinking like you know it's the 25th anniversary they've got this announcement that um sakurai has said that it's going to be close to october I'm thinking, oh, what if yeah, we yeah, yeah. see Lara appear like next to Mario or or even like Bayonetta? And it, it didn't happen. But you know, you've got so many things they could do. I mean, I've already got this idea of Final Smash of like like Winston just appearing with his tray, just throwing like a food. <laughs> yes, exactly. I was thinking about that too. Oh my god, a Winston assist trophy or just like a, yeah. yeah, spirit. That would be so good. I think I think the so modding good. community should definitely put Lara in. Just like on, on like a whatever yeah. hack that they, they have, Lara is yeah, like probably yeah. one of the most fitting characters for Smash, in my opinion. Hundred percent. They should put a skin of her over Bayonetta. They could <laughs> do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Daryl, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. Um, before you. before we go, do you have plans for future books, or do you think you're going to continue exploring the rest of the Tomb Raider games potentially? I kind of feel like I'm done with Tomb Raider in a minute because the first two games is what I wanted to talk about, really. I mean, the next obvious choice would be the end, really, of Core Design's association, Angel of Darkness, before it's handed over. But I've always felt like that would be better as a limited series Netflix documentary rather than a book. I feel like there's so much there you could show. But yeah, with with other books, who knows? Um, I know the publisher's happy with the book so far. Um, We'll see, is what I'll say. We'll see. Awesome. Well, we'll keep my eye out for the Netflix show. Absolutely. We'll, we'll keep our eye out for that. And we'll also keep our eye out for future books from, from you, potentially. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Um, where can our listeners buy your book and where can they support you on the World Wide Web? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, honestly, you can just Google, make an Tomb Raider, and it'll be first few search results. Uh, you can find me mainly on Twitter. So just Daryl Baxter. There is a pinned tweet that says about Pen and Sword and we can buy the book as well, ebook or hardcover and uh, my day job is at tech radar so any writings there about apple google windows um black friday at the minute um i'll be there (laughs) well thank you again and um 
Yeah, I, I've just I've felt so blessed just to, you know, just to be able to follow this Tomb Raider story. I mean, it obviously wasn't as big of a part in my life as it has been in yours, but it was one of the first video games that I recall playing on my on my dad's PlayStation one. And, mm. um, you know, learning about the story behind it, it is it's always fascinating for me to learn about video game stories. But this one in particular just seemed like so interesting the amount of effort that had to go into it you know the the obviously i mentioned before the whole pre-email thing was yeah. <laughs> that was huge um so i really i appreciate you for not only writing the book but uh for coming on to the show and sharing uh your extra two cents with us so thank you so much we thank really appreciate you. you no problem thank you i really enjoyed it really really good chat good to hear <laughs> yeah and um you know what we always open up a line to our guests to stay in touch um so you know if there's if there's an opportunity for us to collaborate again uh we're we're open <laughs> <laughs> absolutely yes we'll chat about helen mirin yes absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And, and the spice girls the spice and girls the, definitely yes, yes absolutely your best of <laughs> uh, all right we'll we'll let you go since it is uh probably about nine o'clock where you are right now but uh, again thank you and i hope you have a good rest of your uh of your evening yeah, no problem. You guys too. No, it'll be a really good chat. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. <laughs> hey, everyone. William again here for the outro. Thanks so much for tuning in to the last episode of season two. This season has truly been a trip. There have been tons of ups and downs and an incredible amount of technical issues, but we had a lineup of guests I still can't believe that we had on. A heartfelt thanks goes out to everyone who supported us and those who are still with us from the start. We could not have done this without you. Also, if you haven't already, you gotta follow Aaron at Moiceover. Did you hear he's in a game now? What the heck? Follow me at SoSpiceGuy if you like the occasional tweet full of strange and questionable vibes. And follow us both at the S-Rank Podcast for more of these amazing stories. Season 3? Certainly there will be, and I'm thinking that we're gonna have to shake things up to keep it interesting. Stay tuned, S-Rankers, there's a lot more fun to be had.